I hope when you came in you received a, a handout for this evening as we continue our study of the kingdom of God. You know, for some time now, in the Western world anyway, the church has been deeply divided over whether God continues to show His power among His people. And you say, well, how can that be? Well, it, it just is. If you pick up a book by a Bible teacher, you won't have to read very far to figure out where they fall on which side of the divide. There are Bible teachers and scholars that say that the things you read about in the New Testament, God is still able to do and is doing today. Other teachers say, no, once the Scripture was finished, then all that God has had to say, He has said in His Word, that that is the only testimony available to us that provides proof or evidence of the power and the presence of God. And yet over and over again in church history, we see this division broken down whenever God chooses to manifest His presence, and we're going to say more about that later. But when He comes and manifests His presence, suddenly the division between people who consider themselves people of the Spirit and those who consider themselves people of the Word, that barrier suddenly evaporates, to use the word that Todd talked about a while ago. It just disappears. And suddenly we're not talking about whether the Holy Spirit can or will or whether God's Word says or says it can or can't. Suddenly we're just talking about Him, who is our King. And as we were singing, this verse came to mind. You don't need to turn there, but you might want to jot it down. Psalm 115. Just listen to what it says. Psalm 115, the first three verses. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. Because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? And we live in a nation of people who are saying that. Where is their God? Where is the God of the people called Christians. Verse 3 answers the question, but our God is in heaven, and He does whatever He pleases. Our God's in heaven, and He does whatever He pleases. He lives in a world I cannot see, but He doesn't stop there, because when we begin to talk about the kingdom of God, we discover that He is more than able, more than ready, and often does enter into our experience and shows up as our king. The title of our study tonight is Exodus and the Kingdom of God. We started with two previous studies looking at why we should study the kingdom of God, and then two weeks ago we considered the kingdom of God and what it means, its definition. And so by way of review, I want us to look at three statements before we go into the Old Testament on this topic. First of all, the core message of Jesus was the kingdom of God. When he began to preach, he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning it is immediately available to the people he was speaking to. And because it was the core message he preached, and as we discovered in our study that even the apostle Paul preached as he went from place to place, do we understand what the good news is of the kingdom of God? 
Second statement, in the Bible, God's kingdom is not primarily a place or a people. It certainly can refer to that in a secondary sense, but the church is not the kingdom of God. We are not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a geographical space, but what we discovered is this third statement, the kingdom of God describes the ruling power of the king. It says a very specific and narrow sense in the Bible. And it always describes an attribute of the king, not his realm, but his actual ruling power. And so when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God being at hand, he is announcing that God is present and is about to do something. And people anticipated something because he made reference to the kingdom of God. But it's very important that you and I understand that this expectation that the people listening to Jesus had grew out of their understanding of the Old Testament. And so tonight we want to go to the very beginning where the kingdom of God is first referred to in the Old Testament. But before we go there, let me make a couple of statements. The Old Testament understanding of the kingdom can be described in two statements. Now this is going to change when we get to the New Testament. But right now, in the Old Testament, it can be described in two ways. First, the Lord is king. He is king, and we see that all the way up to the time of the major and minor prophets. When you read the Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, or the Torah, this is the understanding of the kingdom. He is the king. When you read the Psalms and Proverbs, when you read the books of history, this is the primary understanding of the kingdom. The Lord is king. But when you come to the prophets, especially the prophets, what you then discover is the second statement, the Lord will become king. He is coming to rule his people. He is coming to express his ruling power in our time and space. And the prophets are announcing this. They're warning this. They're letting the people know this time is coming in history where he's going to come and rule and express his authority. Well, the first experience of the people of God with the kingdom of God is found after the drowning of Pharaoh and his armies at the Red Sea. And we come to the first direct reference to the reign of the rule of God in Exodus 15, verse 18. And this is what we read. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Now you could argue that any God who creates something out of nothing in Genesis is a God who is a king. And so we can see something of his ruling power even in Genesis. We can see it in, some scholars tell us, in the reference to the plural when he says, let us make us this and that. And, and, and he refers to himself in the plural. And, and it is certainly a hint of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But more significantly, it could be a reference to a royal we. I don't know. I just know when I come to Genesis, uh, Exodus 15, Verse 18, we have a clear reference to the rule and the reign of God. What I want you to see tonight is how we got there. Because before this statement is made in Exodus 15, there are a bunch of other things that have taken place in the previous 12 chapters leading up to this point. And so we're going to do a a 5,000-foot flyover of the book of Exodus. And I love teaching Exodus, but we're not going to go through the whole book tonight. But we're going to look at this section of the book that helps us understand what the kingdom of God is as it began to be revealed to the people of God. Everything in the book leads up to this declaration in Exodus 15, verse 18. It is the climax of the book, 
It is the controlling understanding of everything that's taking place in Exodus. How did the people come to understand that God was the king? First, God comes and reveals his name. God comes and reveals his name. From chapter 3 to chapter 6, we have this conversation that unfolds between Moses and God. You, you remember the story. He's out taking care of sheep. You know Moses. He was the baby that, to escape certain death, was put in a basket. And the Nile was found by a princess in Egypt. He was raised a prince of Egypt. Seeing his people beaten one day in the course of serving Pharaoh, he kills one of the overseers and he buries his body. His sin, his crime is discovered and he runs away. And if you, if you watch the movie, that's when Pharaoh takes all of his names out of the book. And that's why we have no reference to Moses in Egypt according to Hollywood. But he escapes and he goes and he serves with a man named Jethro. And uh, you can read that story. And he goes one day, he's out taking care of these animals, out in the middle of nowhere, and he sees this burning bush. Now, if you were with us last fall, we studied this passage of Scripture where God reveals himself, proclaims his name to Moses. And part of it is illustrated in this burning bush because in this burning bush, we, this, we have a fire or a flame in the bush that is not consuming the bush. It's a flame that needs no fuel to exist. And it's a very dramatic picture of who God is. He needs nothing (laughs) to exist. No fuel, nothing in order to be God. But in this burning bush encounter, there's this conversation that Moses and God have. And in the course of it, God reveals his name to Moses. Do you remember what his name was? I am. His name is I am. In Exodus 3, verses 13 and 14, this is what we read. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, the Hebrew name for God that's used in this text is actually four Hebrew letters, Hebrew consonants. They are transliterated as Y-W, excuse me, Y-H-W-H. Now, sometimes you'll hear teachers refer to that as Yahweh. I'll refer to it as Yahweh. But in ancient Hebrew, the learning to read ancient Hebrew was passed from generation to generation. How you pronounced words in Hebrew was based on who taught you how to do it. Because in ancient Hebrew, there were no vowels, only consonants. And if you can imagine reading a book that has no vowels in it, no A, E, I, O, and U, nothing, just consonants. And so it wasn't until the 8th century A.D., long after Jesus was here, that in one of the Hebrew texts, Hebrew scholars, the Masoretic text, they began putting vowels into the Hebrew so that people could read and it would help them pronounce the words that were there. So we really don't know for sure how to pronounce Yahweh. In fact, it was so sacred that when people were reading the text for centuries, almost no one ever pronounced it. 
It was considered sacred. It was considered holy to encounter the name of God in the text. And so without the vowel signs, no one knows for sure how to pronounce it. If you take the word Adonai, which means Lord, and you take the vowels from Adonai and drop it in the Yahweh, you can pronounce it Yahweh, or some of the old-time Bible translators did it. They made it Jehovah. And we sing about Jehovah, don't we? Jehovah's a made-up word. I don't want to offend anybody, but it's taking those four consonants, dropping in the, the vowels from Adonai, and you get Yahweh or you get Jehovah out of it. And that's where it comes from in terms of our English pronunciation. So the older translators use Jehovah. The more recent ones will use Yahweh. It just depends on which Bible you're reading. But whatever its pronunciation, it is the meaning of his name that is most significant. It comes from a Hebrew verb that means I am. And it carries the unique ability to refer to being I am in the past or in the present or in the future. All at the same time. And so when Moses asked about the divine name, the reply, I am, can be translated, I was who I was, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. So when you come to Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, they're still having this conversation. Listen to what happens in exchange because God uses his name and then he's telling us something about what it means when I am shows up. When he is present, the ever-present one, when he shows up, he tells us in Exodus 6, 6, therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. And that, when you see it in all caps in most Bibles, the word Lord in all caps, it is usually the word Yahweh. It is the holy, sacred name of God. And he says, tell the children of Israel, I am the Lord, or I am the I am who I am. Does it sound confusing? You say, well, what does that mean? He's, gonna, he's about to tell you. He says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. You see, God at this moment is using his name to tell his people something about who he is. He says, I am the present one, or I'm coming to be present in this situation. Who do I say you are, Moses asked. And God says, tell them I am coming and I am here and I am showing up. I'm about to do something. So he's manifesting his presence. When you hear me or you hear another pastor or teacher talk about the manifest presence of God, we're talking about something very specific. Now, there's a sense in which I can talk about the presence of God using the theological expression or word omnipresence. Now, what does omnipresence mean? Todd? Everywhere. It means, good, he passed. It means God is everywhere, all right? So, omnipresence means God is in all places at the same time. Because of that, I can say with all authority, there's no place you can go where God is not. No place in the universe you can go where God is not. No matter what you're experiencing, no matter where you are physically, God is there. There is no point in creation where God is not present. Because of that, in the strictest sense, God does not travel because he's already there. 
When we talk about the manifest presence of God, however, we're talking about something very different. We're not talking about the theological idea that God is here and he's over there and he's everywhere and he's in every spot in the universe. But when we talk about the manifest presence of God, we're talking about that moment where God who lives in heaven in a world I cannot see decides to break the dividing line between what is unseen and what is seen and he opens it up and he enters into our time and space and he acts on behalf of his people. When God manifests his presence, it is truly you and I stepping into the presence of an eternal God who is holy. And his presence affects us. His presence affects us on every level. In encounters in the scripture described like Isaiah and Isaiah 6, when he encounters the presence of God, the very first thing that happens for him in the presence of a God who is absolutely holy and in whom there is no darkness, his first response is, woe is me. And he senses his own sinfulness intensely in the presence of a holy God. What was happening to him? He was experiencing the manifest presence of God, and as a consequence, it lit up all the sinfulness in his own life. The manifest presence of God can affect us physically and physiologically. Over and over again in the Scripture and even in the history of the church, when God manifests his presence, people find it extremely difficult to stay on their feet. And that's why it's so common to find people who are on their faces before God in a moment when he manifests his presence to a group, or even to an individual. The manifest presence of God affects us in that we begin to see things differently when we see them in the presence of God. We begin to see our circumstances from his point of view. We begin to see that we're not in quite the danger that we thought we were from his point of view. We begin to see everything that's difficult and dark and ugly in the world from his perspective, and we find that because he is the king, it's not quite as big as we thought it was. The manifest presence of God is a reminder to us that when God is present, all of God is present, and God is the king, and he cannot show up as anything less than a king. And so where God is, the kingdom is, and his ruling power is present, when I am comes, Everything changes. Secondly, as we move through Exodus, we go past chapter 6 to chapter 12, we see that God engages in a spiritual battle. He has now entered into human history, and he is in this spiritual battle. The message of Exodus is two kingdoms in collision. There's the kingdom of Pharaoh, which is actually a front for the kingdom of darkness. And then you have the kingdom of God colliding, the power of God colliding with the power of darkness. It is the power of Yahweh literally colliding with the power of Egypt. And one of the insights you and I need to take from this is that it is the invisible war that has to be fought and won first before we see something change in a visible world. This is over and over again demonstrated in Scripture. It is when the spiritual battle is fought, when the spiritual battle is finished, the rest of it was easy. The rest of the, the, the visible war was short and didn't last very long. But the spiritual battle had to be fought. Intercessors understand this when they're praying and they're interceding for others. Behind the political and military might of Egypt 
there were spiritual powers of darkness. You see this when the magicians come in with their staffs and they turn them into snakes. And then Aaron's staff, what happens? It turns into a bigger snake and eats them all up. Those snakes were a symbol of their power of darkness. They were an occult symbol. That they were operating out of that power of darkness. The symbolic meaning of that moment can't be missed. You say, well, Don, that seems like a stretch. Aren't you pushing, pushing um, some theology from the New Testament onto the Old Testament? It seems like a stretch that you're talking about the powers of, um, of darkness and the powers of false gods at work here. I want you to hear Exodus 12, verse 12. It'll be on the screen. At the moment of the Passover, God tips his hand as to what's been happening all along. In Exodus 12, verse 12, he says, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the present one. I am the Lord. See, each Egyptian god had in the Egyptian pantheon of idols had a symbolic representation. I believe behind each one was a demonic being. And so God is not treating them as figments of people's imagination. He's treating them as active beings who are acting against his people and who are hurting them and holding them in bondage. In the plagues of chapters 7 through 11, the message to Egypt is clear. Your gods are defeated. Let me give you a summary of the defeat of the gods as seen in the plagues. You're not going to be able to write all this down, but just listen, okay? Hang with me. How many plagues are there? Ten. Good job. Number one, the first plague was the river, all the water everywhere turned to blood. Do you remember that? It's pretty cool in the movie. There were three different gods associated with the Nile River. Osiris, the river was his bloodstream. The god Nu was the god of life that lived in the river. There was Hapi, the god of the flood. And what happened when the water turned to blood was a very symbolic statement that the gods had been killed. And the gods were dead. All three died. The frogs. The plague of the frogs. The goddess Heket was a frog-headed woman who was supposed to control the frog population by ruling over the crocodiles, a natural predator. Being overrun with frogs meant she had not done her job. Heket was dead. Remember the gnats that came from the dust? Pharaoh had power to maintain cosmic order, but God ruled even the dust of the earth. His magicians, when they saw the dust become gnats, they said it was the finger of God. That's what the Egyptian magician said. But Pharaoh's power was dead. The flies, Beelzebub was one of the gods in Egypt. Beelzebub was the lord of the flies because he protected people from flies. And he was honored in Egypt. But because the flies broke out, the flies were covering everything and everybody, Pharaoh's, uh, this Beelzebub was powerless when God showed up. Livestock, the livestock began to die. The bull was sacred to the god Apis, the cows to Isis, and the ram to Ammon. And the representations of the three gods, 
by the dying of the livestock, it was saying these gods were being exterminated. Boils, the, the diseases of the skin. God overcame their gods of healing because they were all diseased. One of their gods was Sekhmet, who had the power to cause and stop epidemics. He was unable to stop the epidemic, hence his power was voided as well. Hail, in Exodus 9, God, the god Soph, was the god of the atmosphere, also known as Shu, or the sky goddess, Nut, it looks like Nut, or Tefnut, the goddess of moisture, or Seth, who was the god of the wind and the storm. Heaven was the home of the gods of Egypt, and when God disrupted the heavens, he was demonstrating that all of these gods, where they lived, their home was in disarray. The locusts. The locusts appeared against the god Men, who was the patron of the crops. Isis was the goddess of life. Nepri was the god of grain. Or Anubis was the guardian of the fields. Or Sinahim was the divine protector against pests. They were no match for Yahweh. Darkness. Pharaoh was the son of the son of the sun, Ra. Amun-Ra was the sun god, the biggest, most powerful god in Egypt. In the whole Egyptian pantheon, they were powerless before Yahweh, who brought darkness over the land. And then the death of the firstborn. Pharaoh and his firstborn were held to be of divine conception. This was the basis of his authority, that they had been conceived by God, not like other human beings. The death of Pharaoh's firstborn in the tenth plague represented the death of deity. And you remember that each of the plagues was preceded by a prediction by Moses and that the people of God were protected from every one of those plagues. The fact that God was intervening and confronting and colliding with and destroying the gods of Egypt, the demons behind those gods were set to running. And they could not argue with the truthfulness of the power and presence of God who was expressing his rule. He showed himself to be king over nature and over the gods of Egypt. And then we move to chapter 12 through 14, where we see God engages in a visible battle. Remember, the invisible comes first, and then the visible. <coughs> Excuse me. Having defeated the powers of Egypt in the heavenly realm, <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> The Lord defeated them on the military front. All the gods were destroyed. And the horses and horsemen of Pharaoh went into the sea with their chariots. The Lord brought back the waters and drowned them. This victory of God was the final act of deliverance for Israel. That was the easy part. That was the easy part. And then chapter 15, we see God's people sing a song about the king. You see, all of this leads up to that phrase in verse 18. And what's striking about this song, if you go back and read it in your Bible, if your Bible has the word Lord in caps in that song in chapter 15, it is standing in the place of God's holy name, Yahweh. And what's remarkable is how many times his name shows up in the song. I counted 11. You might count more or less. But over and over again, they're talking about God who has defeated his enemies, who is a warrior king who comes and delivers his people when they call on him. 
He's a God who can enter into human history and collide with the powers that are deafening and destroying the people of God. His ruling power is clear. And so when you come to verse 18, we find the first reference to God as king in the Bible. And here it is, Exodus 15, 18. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. (laughs) They got it. They understood it. They experienced it. He is a king. Do you and I know he's a king? Do we understand that the God we serve is a king and that we are his people, that we belong to him? I mean, when you and I fully understand that, we ought to stand up a little straighter. We ought to be a lot less afraid of the things that cause fear in our heart. We ought to be a lot more bold in what we have to say to people about our God. Because my father, he's a king. What does this mean for us? Four things, and then I'm going to close. Number one, God is a king who comes down to set us free. He's a king who comes down to set us free. Years later, when Moses talked about what happened in Egypt, he's recounting the story in Deuteronomy. You remember Deuteronomy was the the second giving of the law just before the people entered the promised land after 40 years in the wilderness. So some 40 years later, Moses is telling the story, and in Deuteronomy 33, verses 1 and 2, listen to what he says. Now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, the Lord came from Sinai. And dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of his saints, or his holy ones. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. Remember where Moses met God? Sinai. Where was the burning bush? Sinai. And God told him there, he said, I am who I am, and I'm going to defeat the people and the gods are holding my people in bondage. And so Moses has this image of God invading Egypt from Sinai. And he comes with 10,000s of his holy ones. And the picture of God as a ruling warrior king is firmly fixed in his mind. And it began that day as he stood barefoot before the burning bush. God is a king who comes down to set us free. You and I must understand that. Any of us here who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, you have been set free. You have been rescued from a kingdom of darkness, and you have been conveyed or carried into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. And in that kingdom, you can expect on a regular and a routine basis for the King of Kings to express his ruling power in you and through you. He comes down to set us free. Number two, God collides with the powers that enslave his people. God collides with the powers that enslave his people. We see it in Egypt. We're going to see it elsewhere in the Old Testament. But he comes to fight. He comes to fight. What does that mean for you and me? It means I don't have to fight all my battles. In fact, there are a lot of battles. If I try to fight them, I'm going to lose. And he will fight for you. 
And when you pray, you ought to pray like he's a God who's a warrior king who comes and collides with the powers that want to do damage to you and your family or to your church or your community. God collides with the powers. Number three, God delivers his people to himself. What was Moses supposed to say to Pharaoh? Let my people go. Why? That they may serve or worship me. You see, God just didn't set you free to go off and do whatever you wanted to do. God set you free so that you would be his, so that you would belong to him. He is the king, and he has purchased you and made you his possession. You are his people. You are his precious family. And then finally, number four, the kingdom of God is what happens when God exercises his ruling power in our experience. You see, some of us have the idea that God's going to make everything right when I die. Well, that's certainly true. But I believe God has much more in mind for you and for me than just that. He didn't teach us to pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If he did not intend to act before you and I got there. We serve a God who wants to act and enter into our circumstances. Now there's a mystery to the kingdom. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks whenever we get to it. And that I don't understand how a God who is a king doesn't come in and fully express his rule right now. But that's part of the mystery. The disciples didn't understand it too well either. But I do know this, that if I ask him to, if I call on his name, if I cry out to him the way the people in Egypt did, we serve a God who will come. He will come. And he will manifest his presence and he will rule in my circumstances. It may not always be the way I expect. It may not always be the outcome that I'd like to see. But he's a king and he has a plan, and I can expect him to show up in my experience in my life. Is that your expectation? When you pray, do you expect things to happen? Do you expect those things to happen not because you prayed, but because he's a God who is just waiting for someone with a whole heart to call on his name so he can enter and go to war on behalf of his people. Let me ask you to bow your heads and to close your eyes. We're going to have a time of response in just a moment, but I want to ask a question. I want to pray before we do this. Do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you know he lives inside you, through his Holy Spirit, would you just lift your hand and put it back down? You know Christ as your Lord and Savior. Thank you. Thank you. You can put your hand back down. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior and you were not able to raise your hand because of uncertainty or because you know for a fact that you've never trusted Christ and he is not your king, he is not your Lord, I want to invite you tonight to take a step, to make a decision, to make a choice that will change your life. I'm going to ask you in just a few moments to take a stand for Christ. The Bible tells us, and we're going to see this more clearly in a few weeks, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ came into this world to demonstrate for us the ruling presence and power of God. He came preaching the good news, but he didn't just preach it, he also demonstrated it. And he wants to do that in your life. He doesn't want to just forgive your sins, although he did that when he died on the cross. He made it possible for every person that puts their trust in Jesus to have all their sins 
forgiven. And the moment you trust Christ, he will forgive you for all your sin. But more than that, he wants to come into your life and lead you and guide you and direct you and use you. And would you like him to do that? Are you willing for him to do that? As you look back over the course of your life, how have you done with your life? And do you see it now the way God does? It's just someone fumbling around when so much more is available to them. Tonight, I want to offer you the opportunity to receive all that God has for you. In just a moment when we stand and sing, without hesitation, whether you're in the balcony or on the floor, I want to invite you to slip out of the pew and come forward. Take one of these pastors by the hand and say, I want to know Christ. They'll share with you. You can read scriptures for yourselves. You don't have to take their word for it. Say, show me the word. And they'll help you understand how a person receives Christ as Lord and Savior. But your life can change tonight. The decision is yours. Then brothers and sisters, I don't know what your need is, but maybe you need someone to pray with you. God didn't make you to be an island unto yourself. He gave you the church and he puts you in a church. God forbid that you would come here tonight with a great burden and we don't pray with you about it. And So I want to invite you to come. Pray with these guys. Come pray at the altar or pray where you're standing. But we serve a God who's just waiting for someone to call on his name and say, God, help me. God, help me. Lord, I need you. Father, thank you for these dear people. Thank you for your word. We pray, Almighty God, as we respond to you now, I would just say, Lord, you are welcome in this place. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. And speak to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.